Global Governance Futures is brought to you from the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. How does the world hang together? What has gone wrong? And what has global governance got to do with it? To learn more, please visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. In an essay in the Boston Review, Professor Jeff Mann writes, The tragedy of liberalism is its inability to narrate the end of progress, yet this is the impossible task asked of the Anthropocene. Well, that certainly got my attention. A leading light in the field of economic geography, Jeff has made a career out of decoding the stealth ideologies of our industrialized political economic conditions. His poignant exploration of the Anthropocene invites us to examine the ideals of liberalism and their fascinating, deeply problematic encounter with the climate crisis. In our candid conversation, Jeff exposes the progressive vision embedded in liberal thought and the hard stop presented by the Anthropocene, perceived by many as a tragic final act. But here's the rub. As Jeff notes, it is a misconception to conflate the end of liberalism with the end of the world itself. Instead, Jeff suggests a more reluctant liberalism might allow for the possibility of other humanist histories, futures, and potentials to reveal themselves. A, a, a reluctant liberalism in the sense that it's constantly self-critical. I, I don't think there's very many people in the world who would want individual liberty to disappear. But it's also naive to suggest that only liberalism can provide that. If it were to understand itself more modestly and more generously about the rest of the world, one might also understand this as the opening of other doors or the emergence of other skeletons and therefore the bodies uh, that they inhabit uh, that that might actually provide solutions is the wrong term, provide trajectories or promises that liberalism itself cannot imagine. But precisely because it understands itself as the peak of moral and intellectual history, that, that's completely unimaginable to it. This is Imperfect Utopias or Bust, Global Governance Futures. Professor Jeff Mann is Distinguished Professor of Geography at Simon Fraser University. His research spans political economy, economic geography, and international relations. We spoke with him in July 2023. This invitation really came uh, off the back of reading your very eloquent and thought-provoking 2019 essay in the Boston Review, it was not supposed to end this way. And I think it's really a fantastic tour de force. I mean, it weaves together these different themes from political economy to the Anthropocene, and perhaps particularly presciently, the question of permacrisis, the sense of what we might call now polycrisis, but also allows us to see how these different themes interrelate, to see them from perhaps a slightly distinct angle as symptomatic of the failure of liberalism. And the failure of liberalism as a normative political ideology, uh, as a kind of a, a, a civilization running code. And I've really found the essay rewards repeat reading, particularly not only because it it has so many great ideas and insights, but it also helps us to decode how, how in a sense, liberalism is the water that we swim in, which is <laughs> perhaps a particular challenge, you know, particularly from within the Western Academy, within Western culture and society. And it makes a really compelling case that uh, this underlying sort of source code of Western civilization is now in serious trouble. So we're really excited to have you here with us today, Jeff. And we often like to begin these conversations by inviting some personal reflection on your own intellectual life journey to, to where you are today. So if I could ask you, um, to begin, perhaps by giving us a flavour of 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 how um, how you arrived at this insight in terms of not only sort of the Anthropocene as a game changer for Western political economic organisation, but also the Anthropocene as really a fundamental, perhaps existential uh, challenge to 
to liberalism as a meta narrative. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, thanks. And thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I, I would say that I think I came to, you know, these kinds of concerns, uh, just like most other people in the sense that I was working on, I guess, sort of loosely related issues uh, uh, in my PhD, which is now a long time ago, uh, mostly around uh, workers' rights and, and and wage negotiations in the natural resource industry, to be honest with you. But of course, anything close to natural resources is going to have you involved to some extent in what we might think of as environmental politics. And I I, 25 years ago, I might have described myself as something of a skeptic around climate change, if I'm honest with you, mostly because it felt a little bit like someone had hit a panic button and many other concerns were being left behind. Um, but over time, particularly, I must say, through my partner, Michelle, who has been working on climate issues for decades, I have learned uh, much more about the depth of ne the, the necessity for our concern. I would say. And I really think it's probably that both a combination of sort of intellectual life as, you know, a fortunate academic, but also exposure to and and involvement in local organizations and activism that has allowed me to kind of come to at least what I understand to be the, this, you know, an understanding of a moment that I would say crisis doesn't quite capture the word crisis no longer captures quite adequately. adequately. Uh, but I, I think that's probably how I ended up where I've ended up. Um, and coming at it from a political economy perspective is just basically a product of my training. I actually wasn't trained as a geographer. I've just been lucky enough to land in a geography department, which is extremely welcoming intellectually, uh, very Catholic in the small C sense. I have fantastic colleagues who have encouraged me to go wherever my nose takes me. And, uh, and I feel like that's how the best kind of political economy is done. Not to say that I myself am doing it, but but that I have the opportunity to. Yeah, so, well, let's get into the weeds on this. <laughs> so how, how can we begin to comprehend the scale and the depth of the challenge posed by the Anthropocene to liberalism? And, you know, again, the, the essay is, is full of really wonderful turns of phrase. So, you know, one of those is the, this idea that the Anthropocene is a huge challenge to the reality management system or Spaceship Earth's most privileged passengers. Mm -hmm. And I particularly like that turn of phrase because it invokes Spaceship Earth, the language of but Mr. Putter. And we actually had an earlier interview with the with the um, installation artist, Jonathan Keats on but Mr. Putter and the motif of Spaceship Earth. Um, so yeah, please, perhaps we could begin there in terms of unpacking sort of what is the core uh, argument here? Right. Um, so, sure, I'll give it a go. I mean, in some ways, I, I, I should say that uh, the uh, those of you who have read the essay will know that it kind of unfolds in a sort of narrative manner. And I'm trying, if I can pull it off, of course, it's a different question, but I'm trying to tie together the threads as we move through the argument. And so there are moments at which I, I think reading it in retrospect, I don't always close the loops that I've opened, um, but maybe I have the chance to do that now. Uh, but I would say that for me, one of the things that is, is crucial about the Anthropocene is not so much that it is a game changer, but that it wants to be, or at least the, the people who use the concept want, want to be describing a game-changing moment in a sense, much like, as the essay mentions, Kreutzen's first comment that you know, he hoped that the word would be a warning to the world or to all of humanity effectively. And I think that its posture as a game changer, if we can imagine it almost having a life of its own, this concept, is crucial to both its importance and also how it's been picked up and also how it's been critiqued. Now, I'm probably going to repeat things that many people on, who listen have heard, and certainly you three will have all have heard. But, you know, the Anthropocene was immediately attacked uh, and I think very justifiably as, as you know, attributing responsibility for our current conditions, our, again, should always, I guess, be in quotes, uh, to the all of humanity, to the, to, to the world as a whole, when clearly most of the, at least the climate dimensions of our crisis are the product of a very small minority of the planet in a very small part of the planet, arguably. 
Um, and so that kind of distributed responsibility is in no ways a just narrative of how we've ended up where we are. And of course, the narrative itself attributes responsibility for dealing with the problem. And I think that that crit criticism is, is very, very sound. Um, but what interested me most, and I should uh, stop talking soon because I can go on and on, is that the Anthropocene so glaringly doesn't fit in the progressivist narrative that liberalism has always relied upon. Whether or not that's in its idealized version, you know, so much of the liberal narrative is the fantastic role that liberal ideals have played in making progress possible. And when that progress doesn't happen, the, the responsibility for the lack of it is not in any way liberalism's. It's the world's inability to kind of match, you know, what we what, what the ideals propose. Um, but the Anthropocene just does not fit. In many ways, as I say in the essay, it it can be understood as a sort of tragic ending act. You know, that's how a lot of people understand it. So where does that fit in the narrative of progress? This is the question that I really wanted to get at when I started writing it, was to think about how narrative, how liberalism can narrate its own end. And it seems to me that the Anthropocene is a concept that was a game changer in that sense, uh, unwittingly so. So I really want to make sure we arrive at that um, insight and that question of how liberalism narrates its own end. But before we do, let's perhaps dig a bit more into how the Anthropocene, as you put it, unsettles the kind of fundamental tenets of liberalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the most sort of intriguing and uh, I think most um, um, provoking, in a sense, uh, observations is this idea of the impossible we, uh, you know, we need to save the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you say, you know, this is a we without a they. Uh, the solidarity performed by these sort of inclusive universal categories is a kind of false solidarity. Um, and, and the notion of humanity in the Anthropocene itself uh, implicated in, I think, what a lot of international relations scholars really are focusing on, which is global collective action problems. That's often mm -hmm. the frame. We understand the UNFCCC process. Uh, that, that itself as well contains an equally false solidarity. And of course, this also brings up questions of, I think, as you put it, you know, liberalism, siblings, capitalism, and colonialism. Mm -hmm. So I think that gives a taste also of just how wide ranging this essay is and how ambitious it is. And I, frankly, although maybe you don't close all the loops, I think it's incredibly valuable that you open up you know, mm -hmm. these loops, uh, which will continue in, in, in dialogue such as this one. So perhaps just initially, you know, help us understand then this impossible we. In what mm -hmm. sense is this a we without a they? Well, I, I think, I mean, in some ways, what I'm trying to flag here is is what I would describe as liberal politics, at least in its sort of general form, as this constant attempt to, in its best ways, and there are some, uh, that uh, someone like Richard Rorty, the American philosopher who passed away a couple of decades ago, would have described as liberalism's capacity to constantly re-describe its community. So the best liberalisms in his view are these are liberalisms that are constant acts of redescription to include more and more to make more and more people welcome, more and more of the world welcome inside the liberal polity, we might say. Um, but that act of inclusion is often uh, a sort of forced recruitment that brings people in and includes them in a in a collective for which, for one thing, they may not have any interest in being part of. Um, secondly, the, the, the logic is often quite retrospective or retroactive. It, it, it brings people in, you know, as if they were already part of the of the community, if that makes any sense. And I think that the Anthropocene really does this a lot, uh, insofar as it writes into the history of humanity all all of us, regardless of our position and our capacity to actually affect uh, the processes described. So this process of the impossible we is the constant false. I would say false solidarity involved in the inclusion of a larger social in a moment usually of crisis when to some extent we could characterize it a little bit glibly but I think not entirely unfairly as the sort of grand scale version of the 
privatize the losses, social privatize the gains, socialize the losses, if that makes any sense. That sort of standard description of capitalism where, you know, when things are going well, those at the top win. And when things are going badly, well, we all did it. And it's all our responsibility. We all have to tighten our belts and this kind of talk. And I do think that there is a, a dimension of that in, in the Anthropocene, and especially in the political motivations that it's supposed to supposed to inspire. And insofar as it has failed to do so for much of the world, I would argue, that is evidence not only of its the falseness of its solidarity, but of the, the muteness of its call, uh, which so many have refused effectively. If we look at how the UNFCCC is working, for example, um, which is, you know, in some ways an attempt to institutionalize mostly via markets, uh, the we of the Anthropocene, the global collective uniting you know, in the face of this challenge. Uh, and its failure is in some ways, you know, predictable uh, given the weaknesses in the concept itself. Jeff, just to, to zoom out a bit, when, <laughs> when we, we, we're touching now on these kind of, these issues with liberalism, but often, and I think in, in, as Tom mentioned, the waters that we swim in, to critique liberalism feels like we might be critiquing you know, some really important values, you know, freedom, liberty. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what would you say to, to people who might just be hearing this for the first time and kind of worried about, hang on a minute, I thought liberalism was the good, was the good guy in this, this, right. whole, this whole fight. Um, and maybe where, where does that link with, you know, capitalism, neoliberalism? So if we could go through some of these terms, that, that, I think that'd be really useful. Sure. Or, or certainly we can try. And, and uh, you know, I, obviously we can do it collectively. It doesn't have to be uh, just me reeling off definitions or something. But I would say you're you're right, actually, and I should have done it uh, right at the outset, uh, is just sort of describe what I mean when I say liberalism um, or what I think we is generally meant when we say liberalism, because it does often sound like not only something that is you know, maybe one of the better things the world has ever created, at least in many people's minds. Um, but it also is tied very closely to, to some conceptions of individual liberty, or even collective liberty that most of us, you know, would really never want to sacrifice, uh, at, at least, you know, in a, in a kind of fundamental way. Um, so in the essay, I try to actually just very briefly lay out a definition of liberalism that includes uh, sort of four, maybe five prongs. The first is that it's, a, is it's generally a universalist a way of understanding the world. So the, the idea is that the rights and freedoms, along with the responsibilities uh, that we associate with life on the planet, are, are not denied to anyone. So they're universalists. And insofar as the, the ideals might work themselves out, it's an extension of those rights or a recognition of those rights elsewhere. And this is how, of course, it's justified itself for some pretty brutal acts, but also for some real achievements, one might say. So it's, there's universalism. There's also a formal egalitarianism. So there's an assumption that there's, of course, beyond, you know, a great deal of material unevenness, but in our legal and philosophical and theoretical beings, we are all equal. And we stand on some imaginary grade at the same level in this formal manner, even though our material lives might be quite different. Um, so that's the second prong. The third is that it's usually politically proceduralist. The emphasis is on the way that institutions work as opposed to the consequences thereof, if that makes any sense. So the whole point of liberalism is that we work through problems in a particular way, as opposed to ending up at a particular place. Does that make sense institutionally? Um, and then, then most famously, it's, it's sort of focused on the freedom of the rational and reasonable individual, the two being quite different, I would say, insofar as rationality assumes a kind of particular knowledge and autonomy in the world. And the reasonableness dimension, which is, I think, much more emphasized in kind of American liberal framings, is about the willingness to kind of dialogue and understand the rationality of others. And then finally, we might say that built into all of this in the words of John Gray, and it's a word I don't really like very much, so I don't use it, but liberalism is almost always meliorist, which he called meliorist. I think it's a terrible word, but by what he means basically progressivist, that the narrative is almost always one of slow, if bumpy, and sometimes a little bit of backwards, but mostly progress. And liberalism's 
ideals are understood, as I said earlier, to be the key or a key dimension of that progress as they spread further, as they deepen through a variety of communities. And so its links to capitalism are tight, but not absolutely key. They're not the same thing by any means, if, if that makes any sense. Capitalism is in some ways you know, the elaboration of some dimensions of liberalism in the economic frame at the same time that that frame is severed as much as possible from the political. So capitalism and liberalism depend upon, in some ways, the separation of the public and private citizen, the market and civil society. And capitalism, as, at least as it's sort of theoretically understood, can exist only insofar as we can maintain that barrier between politics and economy, thereby ensuring the formal equality that's essential to liberalism, because it means that rich people and poor people are the same in the realm of politics, even though in civil society, we know they're not. But the power is not supposed to slip over the spheres. Am I making any sense? Um, and so that's the relationship. And then colonialism, you know, is narrated differently depending upon the end of history you, you lived through. But there is a way in the capitalist core of narrating colonialism as the dissemination of liberalism and capitalism, and thereby ensuring both freedom and wealth. Uh, of course, that's a very one-sided story, but that, that's those are the links to which I would draw between them just quickly. I think that's a great way of kind of setting out, yeah, the, the, the context. And so if I'm thinking of the listen, so if we, we now understand the kind of some of some of the issues around liberalism and I think we're probably going to unpack some more over the, over the course of the conversation and we also understand that you know that, as Tom was saying th these are the waters we swim in and another phrase we often talk about on the podcast is there's no view from nowhere so mm -hmm. if if we want to so we've established that there might be some issues with liberalism how are we supposed to think differently about things and if, mm -hmm. if this is all we know and mm -hmm. I, when I say we obviously I understand that you know um there are many other worldviews that populate, and I think maybe we could we could talk about that, and maybe the the liberal world order that seems all pervasive, when in fact it it maybe maybe other things are there as well which don't get enough light. Mm -hmm. Agreed, um, agreed entirely. Uh, yeah. It is not an easy thing to do, as you could imagine. Um, you're having trouble doing it. I'm having trouble doing it. Tom's having trouble. We're all having trouble doing it. Um, to, 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 to somehow describe, as you said, the waters in which we swim um, uh, or th this place from nowhere. And I'm not sure that, that the goal, and not that you're suggesting it should be, but I'm not sure that the goal should be to, to discover that place or to construct that place as if it is doable. As you said yourself, there's no view from nowhere. And in some ways it just requires, not just, it requires, I think, and I, I try to practice this, of course, but it, you know, I still fall my, find myself falling into traps all the time. Um, a sort of constant reflexivity about the fact that you know you are swimming in a water or that you are the product of a particular place and that can get tiresome you know this sort of positionality gestures you know i as a privileged white man but it's true <laughs> it can get tiresome to constantly say that um, but that doesn't make it any less true even if it doesn't need to be repeated constantly in a conversation so that we can just so that we can remember the the fragility of our own certainties if that makes any sense. That's, that's the key to me, is to, is to constantly remind ourselves of that. And in so doing, whenever you, whenever you recruit someone to your side or your collective via the word we, it's not that we can't continue to use that term. In fact, it's essential. And it's probably our only hope in many ways, that one term. But we can never use it, quite, we can never use it uh, without thinking. And it's it's that it's that call more than anything else that I would like to to try and practice in my own work, and that I think the Anthropocene missed it missed the opportunity to do that. But it's but the conversation that it initiated has been essential, I would argue. So in some ways, we can see that Anthropocene is having begun debates that needed to happen. And, and it, it was the trigger that made it possible. So now we have all these, you know, some of them are tiresome, these really long plantation Ocene and 
capitalocene in these quite ugly terms, but they're all trying to get at really important questions about, about the responsibility for history to some extent, but not only that, the way in which one can attribute responsibility for redemption, for in some way fixing things. Um, whether or not that's possible, of course, is a different question. But you know, there's a very deep politics to those debates that I think is essential, even if the Anthropocene didn't quite capture it. So I feel like you kind of answered a question that was percolating in my mind already, but I might try and push you a little bit further on it. So you talked about uh, did like fake solidarity, false solidarity, and kind of building what you just said about how you would try and build and incorporate values of reflexivity into your way of being. Do you think we have examples of genuine solidarity or what kind of moving towards them? I know you said we can't imagine them, but is there sort of a path that you can see of genuine solidarity or moments of genuine solidarity despite this sort of falsity and division? Mm -hmm. do you, can I ask, do you mean at, at the kind of global or planetary scale, or do you mean even you know, at local, local or more either, community. both, whichever right. you find, Which, whichever will provide the most hope for us all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, which I, that's a sentiment I entirely understand. Uh, I don't think there are examples, to be honest with you, at the global scale at the moment. Um, partly that's, you know, uh, just a function of the pragmatic problems of addressing a, 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 a global collective that might understand itself as, as all belonging. Um, but I do think, though it may not be as common as we'd like, that we do see we do see examples of real solidarity in certain moments. I, I tend to think that they happen at much more immediate scales, um, which is, you know, to, in some ways to state what thousands of other people have said over and over again. And this is exactly the reason why I, I at least tend to believe that if there is the possibility for ways to adequately address the world as it is unfolding in ways that provides joy and security and dignity to its residents, to the planet's residents, those solutions will come at a more immediate scale. I, I personally don't believe that we're going to get a, a UNFCCC that can solve this problem without perpetuating many of the current injustices uh, that, in my view, plague many relationships across the world. But I do think that uh, we do see examples of this uh, around, uh, for example, indigenous, some indigenous, not all, some indigenous solidarity work here in Canada, I think, has been, has built alliances and solidarities where the differences are recognized and flagged immediately and, and indeed celebrated to some extent, while at the same time that the difference in structural position is also, you know, a crucial dimension of the solidarity itself. Uh, I think there are some transnational people doing work uh, who have really built, to the extent it's even possible, uh, honest to goodness, real solidarities that that matter a lot and have changed people's lives on both sides of the rich-poor divide. Um, so I, I do think that there are examples, but I wouldn't say that they are happening at the planetary scale. And I would say that that shouldn't be where our energies are focused at the moment yeah so I was going to say is it seems sort of unrealistic to think that the global scale is where how things are going to happen and I think something maybe taught to me by Tom or <laughs> from my masters about sort of emphasizing and really empowering local communities and that sort of thing we have the human aspect and you're connecting with one another and that's the real solution and maybe all these institutions and like that are trying to say they're solving the problem. I mean, do we just do away with them altogether? I mean, is that maybe mm -hmm. a bit controversial? Like, do is this sort of like global ruling system just a complete illusion that we need to take down? Mm -hmm. That sounds a bit sounded a bit apocalyptic there, but well, I it's not that I blame you. I mean, I think that I think that without you know endorsing apocalyptic expectations entirely, they they make a lot of sense sometimes at the moment. Um, my co-author in this book that I wrote called Climate Leviathan is a guy named Joel Wainwright, a brilliant, uh, fantastic person uh, who actually just moved to Japan for the year. So if you hear this, Joel, I hope you're enjoying your life in Japan. But uh, he often says, uh, and I think it's fair to describe him as just as much of a skeptic about what 
the UNFCCC can deliver. He often says that there is a great deal of political slash symbolic importance in the very fact that they're trying. It creates bridges and relationships that they may be turn out to be totally inadequate to the problem, but that the very effort signals something important, even though we shouldn't put our eggs in that basket, if that makes any sense. Um, and I do think also at, at the same time that it, we need to be careful of the sort of romance of community, which can be just as, as exclusive as inclusive, again, to state something that many, many people have said. But I do think that much of the motivation for, say, something like the marketization of the problem, which is dominating the process right now, um, is a product of, at root, an understanding of the fact that local communities can't solve the problem, but global communities are too big to build solidarities. So the market is the only thing that can do this. This is, for example, the argument that Christian Gaulier makes. Do you guys know his work? He's the, the fin du mois book in France that's caused a bit of a splash around the Gilets Jaunes protests. Um, his argument is basically like, yeah, sure, solidarity would be awesome, but we're we going to get global solidarity? No. And the only answer is markets. And I think that that is a compelling argument to, to many people. But it's partly because the assumption is that there are certain dimensions to our lives that we cannot give up. And one of them is the global market. Like the assumption is just like, well, that's that's there for good, right? We're we're not giving that up. So, so given that, but you know, more local networks and regional economies are, in my opinion, inevitable. And we might as well organize them as opposed to have them organized for us by whoever else is gonna do that, including the planet's angry atmosphere. I think a lot of people tend to check out and not even want to engage on a local level because the global seems quite daunting or unhelpful. Mm -hmm. It's probably a very obvious, obvious observation. I, I don't think it's obvious. And I also think that it's often useful to state the obvious. Uh, and you can be modest about it by saying I'm stating the obvious, but. I mean, there's always been, you know, scholars public intellectuals out there who have who have sought to uh, uh, um, promote a humanistic vision for planetary level governance people like Richard Falk who's been on the podcast actually or Robert Cox but so far as, as I think you're indicating there's little sign of that coming to fruition there are people who argue that we need another 1945 moment, a kind of reformation. Um, but again, what the what the kind of the root, the, the tap root of that would be in terms of the solidarity. I mean, I, I guess implied in that might be that it requires a some kind of hopefully containable cataclysmic event that mm. would wake people up to the imperative of planetary co cooperation. But that seems rather quixotic at this mm -hmm. time, or or quite nihilistic almost, or fatalistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the sort of accelerationist argument, like we need to push ourselves through some terrible threshold to 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 make the political changes that are required. I agree. I, I think that's a disastrous, you know, project myself. That kind of view. And there are certainly lots of folks. You've probably interviewed many of them who who have pointed to, for example, the Second World War at both domestic and global scales as an opportunity to learn from the kinds of solidarities that might be required. There's a book that was published here in Canada a couple of years ago by uh, a really uh, intelligent and engaged uh, author named Seth Klein that's called uh, The Good War. And the attempt is, is a very common metaphor these days as to we should mobilize like we did during World War II to change the economy in a way that you know addresses in particular climate change, but also using that opportunity to improve what we might think of as social justice on many, many scales. So a sort of re, you know, reworking uh, of, of, the, of the economy in the face of climate and inequality. But I do think some of those calls are quite chaotic, as you said, uh, Tom. Um, and at the same time, they have thus far at least not really demonstrated the capacity to live up to their promises, if for no other reason that they seem in many cases to fall on deaf ears. We can blame the ears, I suppose, for not hearing what is so rational and reasonable a call, but that's a pretty lame politics 
that we've uh, I think fallen into too many times. Um, and, and, and I think bringing it down in a scalar manner is the way to, to address some of that. People's ears are much less deaf if you live next door. Yeah, and I, I think that speaks obviously to the, the deeper critique contained in your essay that in a way liberalism perhaps uh, inaugurates a kind of lame politics, uh, a politics which isn't really equipped to grapple with this situation we find ourselves in. Uh, and, you know, particularly sort of the inability of liberalism to, to sort of look in the mirror and to be self-reflexive and self-critical. Well, I think, it, again, a, a great turn of phrase in the essay, if, if contemporary liberalism had a periodic table, trade-off would be one of its basic elements. And I think what you're indicating there is that ultimately these sorts of concepts and rationalizations, which are kind of at the heart of the liberal project, particularly when we look into the economic domain, that they're just not adequate to the task that we confront when it comes mm -hmm. to, say, biodiversity collapse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Abs I, I agree entirely. Uh, I, could, I couldn't agree more, actually. Um, I do think that that I, in the essay I frame it, I think it, I, I think for the most part, I still think that I, that I'm on to something there, if that makes any sense, that you know the trade-off is is liberal is one of I think I just characterize it as its version of the dialectic, um, which uh, somebody like Antonio Negri would say, yes, of course, it's the dialectic that never resolves itself. This is how capitalism works. It never tips over it never tips over the historical or conceptual edge. Um, it's just a trade-off. Um, but it also builds into liberalism's reality management system. In other words, the concepts and and uh, and institutions that allow liberalism to make the world predictable and understandable according to its categories. Um, it also builds into that reality management system a kind of acceptance of tragedy or imperfection, imperfectibility, that allows it to both maintain its self-confidence one might even say historical arrogance, while at the same time acknowledging its failures is the wrong term because the failures are actually attributed to the world, not to liberalism. They're attributed to the inability of the world to match up to liberalism. And the trade-off is the sort of inevitably tragic outcome of that. We can't have equity and efficiency. We can't have jobs and the environment. We can't have family and career. We can't have any of these things in it, in their pure state, we must always, there's always a sacrifice or a compromise involved. And this is what I meant when I said that it is, you know, part of the sort of periodic table of liberalism is because it makes sense of these, these elements of the social world that are literally, uh, you, you can't miss them. They, they are, they're glaringly in everyone's life. And so it's an attempt to deal with what, at least I would say the dominant frame of mind understands as the inevitable features of the world. But of course, I would say that in the end, none of this is inevitable. Like, and I think this is what you were getting at, Tom. Like when we look at something like biodiversity collapse, there is no trade-off to be had. The world will not function <laughs> without a certain degree of, of biodiversity. So it's not a trade-off about efficiency versus biodiversity conservation. <laughs> it's only a particular framework through which we look at the world that suggests that's even a trade-off at all. And I think this is one of the things that sort of young people have a really hard time. And I don't mean this in a, I mean this in a good way, not a bad way. I think this is one of the things that young people like my children who are 22 and 20, they can't understand. They're like, they look at this, they're like, that's not a trade-off. That's biodiversity. That, that's, that's the priority. What do you mean something else has to be traded off with biodiversity? You're out of your mind. Like, and it's that inability to understand the framework that is, in some sense, the water that, as you said, they don't yet swim in, but we do. And I would really like to just pick you up on this question of tragedy. And actually, I think this might be one of the most provocative points in the essay. Uh, so I'm going to raise it here, <laughs> which is, you know, this idea that the tragedy of politics at the heart of liberal thinking is that the world requires violence. And you suggest that this unifies both the sort of the more orthodox liberal thinkers like Weber, but also the critics of liberal thinking, such as Hannah Arendt. And I was also thinking of Judith Schlar, you know, um, the liberalism of fear. Mm -hmm. And it, um, 
I think this then relates to, you know, the core question which you raise, which is liberalism's inability to narrate the end of progress. And this is the impossible task set by the Anthropocene. But is this not, in a sense, a tragic narration of the end, which is an end which we might envisage as, say, Cormac McCarthy's novel, The mm. Road? Well, I hope not. Uh, but I understand why one would go there. I, I mean, I think in many ways you've hit on exactly the problem that I'm interested in as well, which is the mis I would say the misconstrual of the attempt to, to narrate the end of liberalism as the end of the world. So, so because I think because I think of the, the waters that we swim in in general function like they do as water and we're the fish, precisely because the end of the water seems like the end of the world. Um, and, uh, and liberalism definitely, at least in its dominant paradigm, understands itself as, I think, you know, the institutional skeleton of civilization. And insofar as it sees itself in or it sees itself reflected in the Anthropocene as, as collapsing or as in disintegrating or as in unable to hold up the, the body any longer, it construes that as the end of the world. Therefore, the, the, object, the, the object of the narrative becomes to manage the tragedy or in some ways to twist it such that it seems untragic or merely a phase, another crisis, it's not permanent. Um, but if it were to understand itself more modestly and more generously about the rest of the world, one might also understand this as the opening of other doors or the emergence of other skeletons and therefore the bodies uh, that they inhabit uh, that, that might actually provide solutions is the wrong term, provide trajectories or promises that liberalism itself cannot imagine. But precisely because it understands itself as the peak of moral and intellectual history, that that's completely unimaginable to it. Uh, and to I would argue to many liberals, even those who imagine themselves as trying so hard to be sympathetic, uh, and I include myself in that. You know, sometimes I just get caught up in the water, uh, just like everyone else. I think, uh, and that's the that's the, the the problem that tragedy poses. Of course, is that it carries within it a, I think, an unstated suggestion of inevitability uh but there are other stories off stage it, that it you know it, you can't see yeah i think we've we've talked about or well, we've drawn on some of the kind of issues with 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 the the liberal blips that seem like it's just part of you know the periodic table as as, as we discussed so for example market failure <laughs> uh, is one of the terms and i think in your earlier work um you discussed the the credit crunch you know, these are, and I'd really love if you could, you know, riff on some of those earlier pieces about the way that these are discussed as, you know, a, a blip or a kind of just a, a little mismatch here and there. But mm -hmm. what they, what are they really, what are they really showing us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I, uh, I'm, I continue to be uh, fascinated by this way of describing the problem, especially because, as you will all know, as well as me, if not better, you know, it has become a very dominant way of, of describing the climate crisis and various other problems in the broader dominant political economies, including inequality. Um, and in some cases, even, you know, the collapse of certain political institutions we associate with, you know, elected, electoral democracy or representative democracy. But I do think that the general frame is of market failure or collective action problems, which is a, probably a more generous term, they're 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 hung on a if you imagine them as sort of works of art if that makes any sense works of conceptual art they're hung on a wall that is presumed to you know have a very stable uh, structure and it is itself in some ways constituted only by the water in which we swim so a market failure is only a failure of markets in a world in which it, one imagines that markets 
could solve all problems. And therefore, of course, this one's a failure. It's an exception. Or the collective action problem, of course, is to say that the institutions don't yet exist by which we could overcome this, but the institutions are possible in this global collective action problem. So then we build the UNFCCC or whatever. But the way that these are framed always is such that the failures or the mismatches are uh, anomalies in the unfolding, again, of a progressive narrative that in a in a better world or the world that we should have been living in would have addressed them, if that makes any sense, would have addressed them on their own. And so this, this allows for a way to talk about not only tragedy, but historical disasters, even catastrophe as an, as anomalous, you know, as, as unintended historical mistakes uh, on the way to a better world. And so we see market failure as something that's addressable. We don't see it as a failure of markets. We see market failure, I think most people who don't know economics actually think it means that we're pointing to the failure of markets, but they're actually just trying to describe a situation where there's no market and there should have been. The failure is in the lack of markets in those instances, um, which I think is a radically different way of understanding it um, when you teach it in particular, because I do teach this stuff. Uh, so the credit crunch was another example, of course, where in many cases, this false solidarity became essential to the description of the problem. We all had to, you know, tighten our belts, even though most of us didn't understand ourselves as being the, the, uh, the, the beneficiaries of the good times. Um, but also that it was framed as, again, as a market failure, uh, that there should have been better markets in risk, that those markets should have been more transparent, that they should have been more spatially distributed and deeper, um, and they weren't. And these are a failure of our models but not ultimately a failure of liberalism or, again, the water that we swim in, which should have been able to sustain us um, if we'd done things the right way. Am I making any sense? Uh, well, yeah, no, it, it does, Jeff. Yeah, and I think what's uh, sort of coming through for me is the question of, well, what do we do with liberalism? Then? Mm -hmm. Do we reject liberalism? Do we include it in some sort of synthesis of meta-narratives that are better able to narrate Mm -hmm. alternative futures or alternative possibilities mm. what are the prospects for a, a, what we might call a post-tragic what Jonathan Rosen who's also been on the podcast calls um, a post-tragic liberalism I I don't have a you know a, a, by any means a pat or a coordinated previously coordinated answer to that very good question in my mind um, I do think that uh, a sort of cynicism about liberalism's answers to most of our questions uh, is worthwhile, insofar as I, at least, am very suspicious of any system or ideology or whatever you want to call it, a framework of approaching the world that has answers for questions before they've been asked. And liberalism, I would say, in general, actually typifies that state where precisely those qualities that I tried to list off earlier, allow it to, to provide an answer for any question of which that's asked of it, even before it was, was asked, because it knows the answers before you've asked the question. And so a cynicism toward anything that, that promises that. And I would say this also true in some cases of what, you know, some of my colleagues might understand as being quite liberatory ideologies or liberatory possibilities. Often, not always, but often the revolutionary has all the answers too before you've asked the question. And I'm just as wary of that problem. Um, and so the post-tragic liberalism is in some ways, if liberalism is to persist, and of course we, we can't say, you know, that it hasn't contributed anything to the world by any means. You look at the work of someone like Hegel, who sort of, you know, understood it as in inaugurating a freedom that had been unimaginable beforehand, even if we might regret the way in which it was born. But to the extent that liberalism is to persist, and if, if it does so, it, it seems very likely that it will in the global north, I think it's, it's, it needs to take a reluctant or modest doesn't even quite capture what I'm trying to describe, a, a, reluctant, a, a reluctant liberalism in the sense that it's constantly self-critical. I, I don't think there's very many people in the world who would want individual liberty to disappear but it's also naive to suggest that only liberalism can provide that i mean it does it does sort of make me reflect on the source of that quote you know the water that we swim in which is of course the 
the I think it's a graduation address by the author um, um, uh, David Foster Wallace, <laughs> you know, which was really a meditation on the difficulties I think in the Western context of accessing real empathy, um, the importance mm -hmm. of not being too well adjusted to the societal norm, mm -hmm. uh, and indeed also the sort of atomism um, of of life. And and that feeling, well, and and the the, the sincere challenge of, of solidarity in a, in, I suppose, in a sort of post Nietzschean secular age. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you know this conversation has really done justice to some some very deep, rich waters that you you've opened up with this intervention, Jeff, which you know still feels very fresh three years on, I think it's probably going to still feel pretty fresh a decade, two decades out. So it's certainly going to be an interesting reflection to return to. Um, and I, I suppose, you know, I'd be curious to ask then if if the future is, isn't cancelled, which is to riff on Mark Fisher, mm -hmm. uh, what's the role then of, of, of academics in these times? I mean, how do academics in the West, how do we find the work that's worth doing in a time of endings? Yeah, that's a very good question. Of course, I don't have uh, a, a solution or answer, uh, but I think there's a couple of things that come to mind for me. The first is that um, there is a sense in which, and I, I completely understand this, this disposition for those who might understand themselves as progressive or left or radical. There are many, many, I think, scholars who would self-identify under one of those three terms or more. There is a sense that their work as intellectuals, very fortunate in many cases like me, uh, should involve always an attempt to sort of save the world through one's research. One's work becomes one's politics. I actually think that as valuable as many of those contributions are, that's not necessarily how we should approach what we do as academics uh, or as intellectuals more broadly, which is to say that the world that we, sorry, quotation marks, want to save is one in which thinking and critical thought and debate and the kinds of things that we do persists, I would assume. I could be wrong, but that's certainly one feature of the world that I would like to see continue. That means encouraging the, the work of crazy mathematicians and people studying drama theory or any other thing that seems impractical and you know, not getting people jobs. Those are the kinds of things that the, we want the world to have. We want the we want a world in which art is still celebrated, not seen as some extraneous extra thing that only rich people have. Um, and so the responsibility of academics is in some ways heightened because we have the freedom to address the problems directly, or many of us do, not all. Um, but it's also in many ways exaggerated insofar as uh, much of the world that we enjoy is... It seems peripheral to some of those concerns, and I think that we need to celebrate those 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 acts as well. Um, I think it's harder, and I say this, uh, you know, with with a long distance of knowing, uh, you guys would know better than me. It's harder as a student. Uh, students don't understand themselves, and I completely understand why. Uh, as academics, at least not yet, they understand themselves as. Uh, you know, people on their way to other careers or people on their way perhaps to being an academic or most of them, I would say, don't even self-identify as intellectuals, even though they are. Um, and so the challenge becomes quite different in the way it weighs on them. You know, I make, like it's in some ways it's absurd, uh, but in other ways, it's great that I make a living doing what we're doing. It's kind of, in some ways, it's sort of historically hilarious. And then in other ways, it's not at all. Um, but for a student, that's a very different prospect, of course, because they're basically going into debt to do a very constrained version of what we're doing right now. Um, I would say that, and I tell my students this when I do get the chance to talk to them, that that the way the way to imagine this is to is to is to still. <laughs> this sounds maybe a little bit glib, but they they need constantly to imagine themselves in the creation of a world that they want to live in, not the one that they're told is coming either by the promises, the false promises of the powers that be, 
or the doomsayers graduate classroom these days to get caught in the doomsaying trap. Um, and in fact, this is a, maybe this is an interesting anecdote, but uh, on the advice of a friend of mine named Dan Suarez, who teaches at uh, uh, in Vermont, uh, I teach a I teach a class on climate, and his advice was to take a pause in the middle because students are usually more traumatized than I understood or than we understand as fortunate professors, and that turned out to definitely be true. So I, I took a class in the middle of the semester, and we had a full discussion, seventy people, and focused on the question: Are we fucked? Uh, and it was a real, it was probably the best class of the year for sure, but it was also really crucial to see for them that we're not because the conversation itself led in that direction, but also the legitimacy of that sensibility right now, um, which is hard, you know, it's hard to balance that, that it, it's a, it's a, that it's a legitimate sensibility, but it's not one we can embrace, uh, or need to even in a way. Anyway, uh, I, I think the challenges present themselves very differently, but I also think they present themselves very specifically in per people's contexts. Um, and, and so the privileged place of the academic is in some ways the last place from which I should address other people's ways of managing the current moment. But then in other ways, I, I guess I do have the luxury of reflecting on it in a way that others don't. I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about that and like the, especially the engagement with your undergraduate students, because I know that that certainly an anxiety that I feel quite strongly. I mean, just today, my flatmate came into my room with some graph about the Arctic or whatever melting. And he was like, oh my God, I'm so anxious. And I was just like, don't look at it. Like, don't look at it, go away. Yeah. I don't want to look at it. Not because I don't care or because I don't think it's worth engaging with, but there's just all this bombardment of, it is the end. Like, I mean, just look at our current affairs context now like the whole of south of europe is on fire and we're having the hottest day of the year every day for the last however many weeks and it's really really hard not to get just think oh we're all fucked anyway yeah. so you know what like i'm here for a good time not a long time and i'm just gonna disengage from all the stuff that makes me really really anxious mm -hmm. um so it's interesting to hear you have that it was a very valuable anecdote and to have that perspective and I think you you saying kind of try and contribute to a world that you imagine and focusing on the impractical and people I think that's really important and that's like a really it's nice to hear that perspective as well um and to just think that I think sometimes in my generation and generations below I think I'm just a few years older than your children you mentioned is that to kind of get people out of that because it's very easy to fall into it and yeah the, encourage people to be creative and to do the impractical things I think is definitely mm -hmm. something that we can't forget mm -hmm. uh, only to affirm uh her I think the the sort of absolute reasonableness of of where where she's coming from where those come from and uh and I, and to and to say though I'm sure you all know it that that in some ways this is the defining feature of of the of the university classroom today for me at least constantly especially perhaps i suppose if you teach social science these things loom over everything we say i teach a class called capitalism it's just called capitalism and it's sort of an introduction to the modern economy the way the way i usually say it is the way it really works um and uh you know we have like lectures on interest rates and how the central bank works and lectures on firm structure and really straightforward stuff that help people, I think, understand the business pages, which most of them are quite intimidated by. But it's a rare undergraduate these days that isn't both very wary of how the global economy is structured uh, and also doesn't have climate change in their mind the entire time. Um, and so this is the backbeat to the conversations that we have in the modern university uh, and, and bringing them to the fore I think can both uh, allow us to address the problems more directly, but also actually provides a great deal of sort of, for lack of a better term, emotional and ethical relief to allow students to talk. And not just students, of course, for, for me too. I, you know, my students are now the same age as my children. Uh, and, and in some ways I can see them all. I can see my children sitting there in front of me. And it's really important to me to, to know where, what's on their minds as well. Um, 
I'm not putting this very eloquently, but I, I think this is in some ways an essential function of, of the university classroom these days, one that we don't flag as often as we perhaps should. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I mean, uh, you know, I'm also very grateful to to hear your reflections because, yeah, this is these are the the, the challenges of our times. I mean, these these narratives of fully automated luxury communism at one end and uh, cascading collapse at the other, <laughs> and you know, how do we sort of get out of these patterned ways of thinking to begin to, I think, both, I mean, cultivate some personal sovereignty, which is important anyway. Uh, for our sort of emotional well-being, but also to to perhaps grasp that there may be more potentialities than we're able to see uh, uh, out there, uh, mm. and that um, the future really turns out um, <laughs> as people would predict. Um, so it's going to be another turbulent, exciting year of teaching, twenty twenty three. 2024 mm -hmm. and you know we hope that this podcast is a is a modest contribution to perhaps that ethos of really open uh reflection uh which isn't trying to offer easy answers or to to um amplify the social media <laughs> limbic system hijacking <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us jeff and for contributing um to to this endeavor Thank you so much for having me. It's been really great to meet you all and to talk. Uh, and it uh, was a much less intimidating process than I was worried about, um, which is thanks to you guys. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I feel very fortunate to have had the chance to, to join in and uh, really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Imperfect Utopias or Bust, Global Governance Futures. If you liked this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, other resources, listen to past shows, and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance.